We've been at the I Must Conference this weekend. It's been awesome. And my name is John Hammer. I pastor Sunrise Christian Center with my wife, Grace. And she sends her greeting and blessing to you all. She's leading our kids' ministry back home this morning with my three daughters. But I got to bring my one and only son, Justice, with me. Justice, you want to say hi to everybody? He's in the front row right up here in this service. And he got to be at camp. And we got to go experience beautiful Madison a little bit on Friday before we went out to camp and ride some e-bikes around downtown and see the pretty area. My grandpa grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin. And so the Hammers were Packer fans before they were Seahawk fans. And my grandpa did keep a life-size Brett Favre cardboard cutout in his living room (laughs) till the end of his life, as far as I understand it. (laughs) I love being in Wisconsin. It's really good to be with you guys. And great to be with City Church and with Activate Youth Ministry. And Pastor... Pastors Derek and Sarah are doing an awesome job and their leadership team, their worship team. What an amazing youth ministry. Can we just thank the Lord for what God is doing in them? And actually, my wife, Grace, is married to Ryan Wrights. My wife, Grace, is sister of, sorry. (laughs) Delete that from the tape. (laughs) My wife is sisters with Esther Wright, who is married to Ryan Wright, Derek Wright's cousin. So how about that? And that, that was the proper version two was the right one. But we had an amazing time this weekend. And my parents, Pastors Dan and Terry, have been here before. And they send their greetings and blessings. My dad's preaching back at home while I'm gone, which he does about once a month anyway. And uh, God is doing great things in this hour. And God moved at the I Must Conference in such a powerful way. It's amazing to watch God touch young people's lives. And if I were you, I'd have some of these youth pray for you at the end of the service today. I'm looking at Kellen and Talon. (laughs) No, and and others. You guys should probably pray for people today. Uh, Wow. God just touched them so powerfully and many, and many others. I can't remember everybody's names or else I try to list some more of you guys. But what a weekend. And I... I pray and believe that, that many of your lives will never be the same again um, as God touches you with his precious Holy Spirit. And I do feel that I'm here on assignment by God, not just another speaking opportunity to go back to the motherland of the cheese curds and all of those Wisconsin kind of things that are in my family's roots, but to be here sent by God to bring the word of the Lord to the the conference with the youth, but also to City Church. And I honor your pastor, Tom, and just the leadership here. You have such an amazing team. It's been good to get to know them a little bit over the years at FCA conventions and things like that. But you guys have cultivated a place for the presence of God in Madison and in this region. And I hope that today will add more fuel to the fire and God will stoke the flame in individual lives and hearts and also and your church corporately, that God would do something great in you and through you um, in this season of, of life and ministry. Well, if I get one shot to preach a sermon right now, this is what it is. And so I just want to bring to you my heart. I believe it's the heart of God for his church in this hour. And my message today is titled, The Way That Turned the World Upside Down. The Way that turn the world upside down. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for what you're doing this weekend. 
And I just thank you, God. I've received so much just being in your presence, being in your glory with the young people and now at City Church today. Lord, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would be released all over this room and that every heart and every eye would be drawn to look and magnify our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, I thank you for the way that you come and you move in our lives and you're always present in such an amazing way, but, but you draw near to where we draw near to you in a special, peculiar way. And we ask for that peculiar uh, sense of your manifest presence to be here today. God, that you would touch us with your power, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would activate, that you would release something of your anointing in our lives that would cause us to be worshipers, that would cause us to be participators in the work of the ministry ministry and in your purposes advancing in this hour, God, we pray that you would move in our lives, that we would never be the same and that we would be in awe of your wonder and your majesty for you are good. You are holy. You are awesome, oh God. And I believe, God, that over City Church, I kept hearing it in my spirit last night for the church, Lord God, that City Church, a burning and a shining lamp. City Church, a burning and a shining lamp. City Church, a burning and a shining lamp. Oh God, increase the flame. Increase the fervency. Increase the hunger and desperation for the move of your spirit, for the fire of God to be released in and through this place. We pray these things that the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, might be glorified above all others. Amen. I want to talk to you about the way that turned the world upside down. If you have your Bible, you can look at Acts 17. I'm going to jump through a bunch of scriptures in just a minute after this just to kind of build my case and my point for what I'm trying to share with you today. In Acts 17, we look at the Apostle Paul's ministry and it says that they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia and they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them. And for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas, but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. There is another king, come on, Jesus. And the early church, the apostles, they lived in such a way that turned the known world upside down. And I believe we're living in such a time that God wants to use the church to turn the world upside down again. That God wants to use the church of America to turn this nation upside down. That we're to live in a way that is contrary uh, to the ways of the world, but it's full of hope and full of promise. It's full of power. It's full of Jesus Christ. 
There is a, there is a way that, that, that shook the Roman Empire that Christ and the apostles walked in. And in the first few hundred years of the church, the whole, the whole known world uh, of, the, of the Roman Empire came to know the message of Christ. And the church spread in advance. They didn't have military power. They didn't have political power. What they had was a devotion to our Lord Jesus. And they lived in such a way and they carried such a power that they were able to change the world. I would hope that the inheritance that we will give the next generation is that the young people will look at the church as a dynamic movement of world changers that love and serve their cities that are full of the power and presence and majesty of Jesus, that it's a place that our children and our young people want to go and want to be a part of, not an institution that is just a relic of the past or a formality that we go through, but a life-giving people, the ecclesia, the gathering of God, where God's spirit and power is released into this generation so that people might know and fear the Lord and call on Jesus as their Savior and King. So what is this way? What is this way that made such a big impact in the early church and that God intends for us to walk in? Well, there was that simple little phrase, the way. And Christianity was first referred to as the way or the followers of the way. And before there was a church or Christianity or even the word Christian, there was the word, this idea, this phrase in the book of Acts that's just simply the way. And in Acts 9, 1, 2, when we learn about the apostle Paul, before he's Paul and he's called Saul, and he's, he's a killer of Christians uh, and a persecutor of Christians, it says in Acts 9, 1, and 2 that Saul was breathing threats against the disciples of the Lord and that it says that we went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So if they found any who were of the way, say the way. There you go. The way. What, yeah. So the, the people of the way in Acts 18, a little bit later, it talks about how there was a young man named Apollos who was being discipled by Aquila and Priscilla. And he was, uh, he was, a, he was instructed in the way. Of the Lord. And then in Acts 19:9, it says that there were people that rose to, in Ephesus to speak evil of the way. And then in Acts 19:23, it says there was a great commotion that ro- arose about the way. And then in Acts 22 and 24, when the apostle Paul starts to uh, defend himself and he's in, tr- uh, he's in prison, he's on trial. He talks about how I used to persecute the way in Acts 22, 4, even to death. And then in Acts 24, 14, um, he talks about uh, that there is a way that you call a sect about how I work. He says, I still worship the God of my fathers, but it's, it's, it's through Jesus Christ. But I'm a part of the way. And in Acts 24, 22, it says that uh, Felix, when he had heard Paul defend himself and share the gospel with him, that when he heard these things, he himself had a more accurate knowledge of the way. And you see, we have gotten so used to church being institutional. Now, 
There are good parts of institutions. Institutions last from generation to generation. In some senses, some would say the Bible is kind of like an institution because it's been passed down and preserved generationally. And having buildings and elders and leadership and organization is a part of the church, and we need it. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Corinth, and one of the ways, he didn't just call the church the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. He said, you're God's building. There's something that God builds in the church that we need structure and order, but there's an institutionalism where we get more into the form and the structure and the programs and the flow and pretty soon we lose sight of just being a people of the way. People that follow Jesus. People that have a lifestyle and a culture of being in love with God and wanting his goodness and his gospel to be spread to the ends of the earth and into the lowest and highest places of our cities. So this is how Christianity started and there's something about our birth that was supposed to be a part of our DNA that we carry from generation to generation, city to city, nation to nation, culture to culture. So how did this way spread so rapidly through the Roman Empire in 300 years? It was the way of Christ and the apostles, the apostles of the Lamb of God that were devoted to King Jesus. There's a man named Dick Halverson who used to be a chaplain in the United States Senate. And in, the 1980, in 1984, he said this from the Senate floor. In the beginning, the church was a relational fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome where it became an institution. Next it moved to Europe where it became a culture. And finally it moved to America where it became an enterprise. We must return to relational fellowships of followers of Christ. We must return to the way. Or as a man named Basil, Basil Matthews who wrote a book called Forward Through the Ages. And he said this about that, that first century church that we're looking at today. The little cells or societies of the ways of Jesus enjoyed a community life never before achieved. Here was a new society with a new power to practice a new way of life because it was living in fellowship with the perfect man who is one with God, who is God. This Christian church became the best organized community in all the empire. Its local churches were living cells in a far-flung body covered covering every part of the empire. They were linked together by travels of the bishops. They found fellowship in smaller and greater councils through common ways of worship, through reading the same scriptures, and above all, through burning loyalty to and communion with the one ever-living Christ. We must return to this way of being a Jesus people being all about Jesus, being all about his glory, all about his name, walking in his way. The church is glorious. It's beautiful. It's dynamic. I believe that there is an apostolic blueprint, that there is a foundational code, DNA, culture, ethos, whatever you want to call it, that we can look at in the early church and say that when the church was birthed, there was something present in that early pattern that if we deviated from it too much, we deviate from the power that's available for us to, to walk in oneness with Christ and with the power that he wants us to carry to release to this generation that we're a part of. And one of the things that happened when COVID hit, because I believe that COVID really exposed the American church. It exposed a lot of our idols. It exposed our love for comfort. It exposed 
uh, so much, but it's in this shaking, in this time that the church in the United States has been in, that I believe something glorious can emerge. Because judgment always starts in the house of God, right? And God, God loves, loves us so much, but he comes to purify us and to remove our distractions and to remove the time wasters and to remove the, remove the, uh, the other affections and the other things that get in our way of just really loving God and being all about his business. And so uh, during COVID, it maybe seems self-serving to say this, but I mean, because I'm a pastor, right? But I fell in love with the church. I fell in love with the glory and beauty and majesty of the church. And there's some mess in every church. (laughs) Whenever we got people, right, we've got problems. And so the church does not always live up to her potential or to her ideal, but I learned to love the church as she is. And to really see that the church is the most glorious institution. I couldn't be a part of any greater nation, any greater movement, any greater purpose in my life than being a part of the church, the holy nation, the royal priesthood that is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought, how did I grow up in the church and go to Bible college and be a pastor's kid and become a pastor and just not realize what we do is so significant. Like, I mean, I knew it, but it was like, it really, my eyes were really open this last couple of years to how bad we need church, how bad we need worship, how bad we need to recover the ways of Christ and the apostles. And, and yes, God can, God can reach any way he wants into the world to touch people with visions and dreams and touch people in business or in government or do all those things. But the way that, that we are the hands and feet of Jesus, we are the body of Christ in the earth. And when Jesus wants to touch the world, when the head, Jesus Christ wants to touch the world, he uses his body and he wants us to walk in his ways and I've been saying this to my church let's not stand up for Jesus let's stand up like Jesus because the world is looking for a demonstration of Christ God is, is looking for us to represent him to represent him to the world around us as his hands and feet and that comes when we recover the ancient ways the ancient paths the apostolic waves of walking in Christ's ways and the apostles ways that they laid out for us in Acts 2 42 to 47, we see this way that starts to emerge. And you see this pattern. There was these rhythms that they found, these practices that they walked in corporately as a church. And it says in Acts 2, 42, this is right after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And he told the disciples, his last words was, you wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when my power comes upon you, you're going to receive it to be my witnesses. And so they waited. They waited for 10 days in the upper room and they were hungry for God. They were desperate for him. And as they waited in that upper room, the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and there was great phenomenon. I shared this with the young people last night. And the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts 2 and tongues of fire, whatever that looks like, appears over people's head. A wind blows, a sound from heaven. They speak in new languages, and they are bold. They're overcome with God's power. Peter has to stand up and be like, these guys are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning, all right? And so the power of God had come on them in a very demonstrative way, and they were not the same. And it says, as Peter gets up and preaches, 3,000 people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ in this great move of the Holy Spirit. And the church is born. And then we see the pattern of the first church right there as people are putting their faith in Christ and they're being called to faith, repentance, water baptism. They're promised that they will receive the Holy Spirit. And it goes in Acts 2.42 like this. And then this group, this, this, this church that was born, these followers of the way, 
They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Amen. Well, I want, to, I want to go through very quickly, and then I'm going to get to where I really want to go with the message. <laughs> I see eight keys that are present in the DNA, the apostolic blueprint, if you will, of the early church. And the first is they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They gave themselves to Scripture. I've heard many Pentecostals say, well, you know, they didn't have a Bible. They had the Holy Spirit, but they didn't have a Bible. And, and, and it almost makes it sound like we don't need the Bible as long as we have the Spirit. And that's actually not true. They... they they taught from the scriptures that people didn't have a personal Bible in their homes because there was like manuscripts and scrolls and, you know, some kind of tablets or things like of that nature. But so people didn't have personally have a Bible, but they taught in the synagogues. They taught from the Old Testament. That is the Bible. You don't separate the old from the new. Like that's how our New Testament came about. Look, like try to, if you cut out all the Old Testament references in the New Testament, you don't have a lot of New Testament left. It's, it's just full of quotes of the Old Testament through a new lens of understanding who Christ was and how he came and how we're saved by grace now and through faith and not, not through the law. But, but it's still based on the law and the prophets. It's still based on, and so they gave themselves to study. They gave themselves to the proclamation of the gospel and to the teaching. And we, we talked about that at camp a little bit more in depth. Uh, this, uh, the I Must Conference this weekend. But the, they gave themselves to teaching and to study. And, and we don't just need to move with the Spirit. We need to be people of the Word. And I've, I've heard it said before, you know, without, without the, the Word, Without the word, you blow up. Without the spirit, you dry up. And we need both. We need both in. I tell my church, like, we're going to be a church that encompasses revival and the power of God and discipleship and Bible study, okay? And we're not going to be one or the other. It's like, would you like a brownie or ice cream? I want both and. Like, why do I have to choose? I want the ice cream on my brownie, maybe a little chocolate syrup on top. We need the word. We need the word in our Pentecostal churches. Even under a great move of the Spirit like Pentecost, they quickly looked to root. Peter went right to the scriptures to root their experience in the word of God, to define and give boundary and understanding in the scriptures. We need to be a people of the book. Second, they gave themselves to fellowship. They, they did life together. They spent, it looks like they spent time together every day. So you guys are going to start eating here, hanging out, sleepovers, city church. No, I'm just kidding. But they did life together. They spent time loving each other, being together, spending time. And the pinnacle of their fellowship and their eating of meals was the breaking of bread. And scholars would say that that breaking of the bread is not only just the eating of a meal, but it's what we did today. It's communion. It's the breaking of the bread of the Lord's body and partaking of his blood in holy communion. And the pinnacle of their fellowship 
and they're, and they're, they're meeting together. I mean, the word communion is, has to do with community, common union, right? Is that we have a communion with God and a communion with one another, a fellowship with God and a fellowship with one another. And so at every meal, as they, they gathered together and, and prayed together and fellowship together, they lift up the body and blood of Jesus and the gospel is proclaimed. And the church is built not around a personality. The, per, the church is built around the sacrifice of our Lord and a reminder that he is the coming king who will return one day to take this meal with us in heaven forever and ever. That was, that was central to their DNA was communion with the Lord Jesus. And then fourthly, they gave themselves to prayer, which is the outflow of communion, of this relationship, that it's all about being a people of his presence, right? Is that when we, we take communion, when two or three gather in his name, when we gather together and we worship and we pray, it's about his presence. The church was a presence-driven movement. His presence permeated everything that the early church did. They were found to be like those that had been with Jesus. Even the people that were arresting them, a little bit later in the book of Acts, they're like, we don't know who these guys are. They look untrained, but we perceive that they have been with Jesus. Oh, wow. If this generation would perceive that the church has been with Jesus, that we would carry his presence, that we would carry the fragrance of his name, that his presence would permeate everything that we do, that we would learn to minister to the Lord in prayer and in worship and please his heart. Our first ministry is not to others. Our first ministry is to the Lord that we would love him first and most and give our devotion to him. Fifthly, the power of God was a part of the way. Signs and wonders were done at the hands of the apostles. Normal Christianity was signs, wonders, and miracles, and it says that fear fell upon them all. The fear of God came upon them because God was doing extraordinary miracles. God wants miracles to become so normal in the church and not just for the pastor or the apostle or the prophet or the leader or the super anointed superstar, God's man of power, God's woman of power for the hour, but for all Christians. You know, healing the sick and casting out demons and working miracles was basic discipleship in Jesus' ministry. It wasn't superstars. I think we've gotten so used to, whether it's the comforts of Western medicine, and thank God for doctors in medicine, and I have benefited so much from people that are skilled in my life and my journey. Thank God for all of those things. But in our culture, it's like miracles have become so rare. I think when somebody prays and sees miracles, we almost elevate them as like, wow, they must be really special Christian because look at all this stuff. But these, the disciples were making knuckleheaded decisions full of pride and selfishness, making all sorts of mistakes. They were very immature and they were doing all sorts of extraordinary miracles. But Jesus used miracles as a way to advance the gospel and also a way to train his disciples to understand what their authority was about, to understand how to confront the powers of darkness and the demonic forces of the age that they were in. And we need to return to the way of miracles and signs and wonders. We need to do the stuff. My dad was a big fan of John Wimber who started the Vineyard Church Movement. And John Wimber, when he first got saved, he was reading the Bible and he was so excited about the things he was reading in Jesus' ministry and the apostles' ministry. So he goes to church and sits next to this guy and he goes, so I've been reading the Bible and I've been coming to church for a while, you know, and I wonder, when do we do the stuff? And the guy's like, what do you mean the stuff? He goes, you know, like preach to the poor, cast out demons, heal the sick, do miracles, pray prayers, you know. And the guy goes, well, we talk about the stuff and we think that one day we might get to do the stuff. But, you know, I guess we don't we don't do the stuff. 
And he's like, I want to do this stuff. So he became known in his movement as a guy that's like, hey, you'd have t-shirts even that said, do the stuff. You know, like, we got to do the stuff again. We got to believe God for miracles and give space in our lives and our ministries to stop and pray for people in the name of Jesus and see him do miracles that bring the fear of the Lord. Well, I tell my church, we need the return of the God factor where it's like it's all in on God. We just need God to show up because if he doesn't show up, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to work. We need to depend on him in that way. We not only need the power of God. We see that the DNA of the church is radical generosity. They gave in such a way that the needs of the ministry and even the practical needs of everybody in the church were met. And they practiced radical giving. Seventh, they daily gathered and scattered. They had a rhythm of regularly meeting in the temple in large gatherings for worship or prayer or teaching, but also scattering house to house. And they weren't more of the church when they gathered and less of the church when they scattered. We're the people of God. We're the ecclesia. We're the gathering, the assembly of God. And so when we are together in the, in the home or in the marketplace or in the city streets or in the building, we're still the church. And so we've got to understand that we, we, we need to gather and we need to scatter and we need to see the importance of both and. And Lynn 8, lastly, we see that the multiplication of the harvest God was working with such a presence and power among the people and they were living in this way of life. This was a way of life for these believers. And this way caused people to be added to their number daily. Those who are being saved and putting their faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm praying for that. I'm praying that God would do something in our church in Everett, Washington, just north of Seattle. I'm praying that God would just pour out his spirit in such a way over our church that daily people would get saved. That people would start getting discipled and plugged into the church, not because a person on the staff of the church like called them and told them about a class and all this stuff, but because my church would live in the way. And I would learn about people that got saved, people that need to get baptized, people that need to grow because we're living this faith out everywhere we go. It's a part of who we are. And you can see in the book of Acts, it started with people being added daily, which to me would be pretty radical if we started seeing that in our churches, daily additions to the church. But it ends up where people start getting, where the churches and believers start getting multiplied as the gospel advances shortly thereafter. It was a total spiritual awakening. I love what E. Stanley Jones says. He says that Christ and his kingdom are, are God's total order for man's total need. And that's what you see in the way of Christ and the apostles is that Christ wanted to be involved in every area of our lives and the church was living out, the apostles were living out this way that involved and encompassed their whole life. It wasn't like I have my God time, my church time, my religion time, but it was like the, the very way of Christ permeated everything about what they did. His presence, his power, a life of prayer, generosity, purpose, mission, community, family. And they started to touch their city um, as sometimes even persecution or hard times came. God used these people to walk this way out in new communities and in new regions and new places that so desperately needed the Lord. And the church advanced in the first few hundred years of church history in such an incredible way. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote in his apology to the Roman government to make a defense of why they should not be afraid of Christianity spreading in the Roman Empire. And he basically tells them at one point, you know what, we, we, and he's speaking of the church, the people of the way, he's like, we're in the Senate, 
We're in the palace. We're in the forum. We're in the marketplace. We're like, he lists all these places, like maybe a dozen places of, in society, in the culture. He goes, we've left, he goes, we've left nothing to you except for the temple of your gods. We've, he's basically, what is he saying? The church has infiltrated every area of society except for where idols are worshiped. That's the power of the way. That's the, they, didn't, they, didn't have, they didn't have the right general. They definitely didn't have the right emperors at that time. They did not have people that were like pro-Christianity, right? They didn't have like, you know, they didn't have that. They, from the bottom up, by loving their neighbor, by serving one another, by casting out demons and healing the sick, and by loving people. When people ran during plagues, Christians ran to go help people who were sick during the plagues, even at the risk of their own loss of life, to love their neighbor and to lift up the poor. And they were a presence-driven people that carried the power of Christ. And oh, if God would restore this kind of power over the church, that he would restore that glorious sense of his presence over his church, that we would be a people, that the city would know that we've been with Jesus. So how does the church experience the power of the way? I believe we have to make five moves, five transitions. Number one, we have to move from observation to participation. The church is not a place that I go spectate. It's not a spectator sport. The church is a place that I participate. And one of the ministries that Jesus, I believe, is restoring in this hour, at least in my life, in my church, is the ministry of the priesthood. Did you know that you're not just supposed to have a relationship with Jesus, but when you have a relationship with him, like you're saved and you're a follower of Christ, you got a job to do. It's called priesthood. Martin Luther, he restored the truth from the scriptures that we're saved by grace through faith. Thank God for that understanding and that revelation in the word of God. And also, he wanted to restore the priesthood of all believers. But so many churches think that a pastor or a leader or somebody special has access to God or, you know, we show up at church, we might get excited every once in a while and raise our hand, throw some money uh, in the offering, thank God for those things. But then we think the professionals are the priests or the leaders. But the Bible says, Peter says, you're a royal priesthood. We're all given the ministry of a priest. We're all called to participate. Just even if, even if you don't volunteer, which participating should be more than just worshiping. Uh, and, and we need people to serve and get involved in other areas in churches. All of our churches need. All churches, no matter how big their staff gets, runs primarily on volunteers and the ministry of the body, one, two, another. I'm not discounting any of that, but what I'm saying is even you just coming on a Sunday and worshiping the Lord and learning to bring a sacrifice of praise is you starting to realize I've got a holy calling and on your drive to church to start saying, God, I'm coming to bring a sacrifice of praise. I'm I'm coming to make myself a living sacrifice. I'm coming to assemble with your people and I'm going to lift my hands and I'm going to come to the altar and I'm going to kneel before you and I want the place that our church gathers to be holy ground and I want your glory and praise presence. You know, our, our, uh, uh, the glory of God has been visiting our church. Our, our worship, uh, one of our worship leaders at our prayer meeting last week, he said, I felt like the people were pushing me. I felt like they, I was not trying to bring them into God's presence, but they were actually running ahead of me. And I was just following along and facilitating the worship that they wanted to bring. You see, we we're called to participate, not just to observe. And our participation from our worship to our serving, to where we volunteer, to where we meet people's needs is vital. The church isn't a place I go to. It's a people I'm a part of. 
I heard one preacher talk about how, yeah, you go, like the difference between eating a meal at home and eating a meal at a restaurant. It's like you go to a restaurant and you can be like, my fries are cold. Uh, you didn't make this as good as you made it last time. Uh, I want another cup of, I want a refill on my coffee or my soda right now. But you do that at home, dad's gonna have words with you if you talk to mom that way. <laughs> this is cold and you used to make it better. Like, I don't like this dressing on the salad. Like, why did we use this one today? And then dad's like, all right, you get to help make dinner the rest of the week if you don't like the way dinner is tonight. That's the difference between being in a family. We are a spiritual family. We're not a spiritual business that provides goods and services that a few people do that other people pay for and then go, I didn't like the worship today. I felt like the message was like, it was okay, but it would have been better. That guy paced around a lot and he raises his voice a lot. And then it, and, and see, when you're at a restaurant, you can consume and you can pick and you can go off the menu and you can switch to other places if you like their meal better. But when you're a part of a family, you participate, you're involved, you want to bring change, but you bring it from the inside of serving and praying and working and worshiping and being a part of what God is doing. <laughs> Secondly, we must move not only from observation to participation, but from consumership, if that's a word, consumership to discipleship. Similar to number one, we've created a generation of consumers and we've got to move to a generation of disciple making. Even in our spiritual programming, we have to be careful because we can curate wonderful experiences in the church. 10-week Bible study, and then you should go to this fellowship, and then you should go to this camp. And I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but we can get caught in making things for people to consume spiritually that will help them grow to a certain point. But discipleship is where it's at, where we walk with people, and we impart to them, and we train them, and we do life with them to such a way that the life of Christ that burns in us burns in them to a point that they want to give that life away to somebody else. The, the principle in the scriptures is to disciple disciple makers. You're not being discipled to just like accumulate more knowledge and it breaks my heart sometimes. I'll have people come to me. They're like 70 years old. They've been in the church 50 years. I love them, but I see it. And I said, could you help this new believer? Would you help do this? And they're like, oh, I've never been to Bible college. They've literally been to 40 or 50 years of Bible studies. Barely ever miss a Sunday church service. Are prayerful, faithful, devoted. And they're under a lie that they can't make a difference in somebody else's life. Something's wrong with our discipleship if people who have been in the church that long don't feel that they can help impact or reproduce another Christian. See, being a disciple, when you're being discipled in Jesus' rabbinic culture, you were being taught to be a teacher. That's what a disciple of a rabbi was to become a rabbi. Right? What do you, Christ gave the church the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And he breathed on him. Receive the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit fully comes upon them in the day of Pentecost. And now they have the power of Christ to do the ministry of Christ. They were to be a disciple-making organization. I was telling the first service, I just love being around pastors Derek and Sarah and the leaders that they have and the worship. They just have a heart to reproduce leaders. And you can tell they do ministry together and they pray together and they have fun together and they play games and they take trips and they take risks and they cast out demons together. And I'm like, that's the Jesus stuff. I love it. We need it. 
Not just consumers, but disciples who make disciples, teachers who teach teachers, leaders who lead leaders. Number three, we must move from curiosity to desperation. We must move. We must move from curiosity to desperation. We have a, my friend Ben Dixon, that pastor, one of my best friends, pastors in our area, he always says, when you're curious about something, you know, somebody tells you about a new restaurant, and you're curious, you might drop by, maybe, if you're in the area. Oh, I heard about this place, maybe I'll try it. But if you're hungry, hunger puts a demand on you. People do crazy things when they're hungry. People commit crimes. People like, people will drive so far out of their way sometimes. You know, like, I mean, sometimes you're hungry for McDonald's ice cream. You might have to drive to how many McDonald's to find out the ice cream machine actually works. But if you're hungry, you're like, hey, there's like 10 of them, you know, within driving distance. And you spend an hour or two going from place to place. And you're like, finally, one that works or whatever. And you know, like, like finally that one, because you're hungry. Hunger puts a demand on you. We can't just be curious about the things of God. Well, I mean, maybe if God wants to show up, I guess maybe, you know, if he wants his power to touch me, I guess I'll just see if anything happens. I'll, I'll see how much juice is on the worship team today. And, and, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm not really feeling it. I guess I, I, I'm just curious. No, but people that are hungry, they seek the face of God with a desperation and a longing. And we see that that was a part of the way of Christ and the apostles, that they had a desperation for God. They were hungry for God. They wanted God to move. And God showed up last night. He showed up all weekend at the, at the I Must conference, but he showed up, there was hunger in the room. There was hunger in the hearts of these young people. I mean, some of these young people shook for like an hour under the power of the Holy Spirit. My dad would like always say, like, people say, well, they're making that up. He's like, try to shake for five minutes by yourself. See how hard it is. God was touching people with his power. You know, there's a work of hunger and desperation that God has done in my life. The last few, the last few years have been a crazy ride. Uh, my wife and I were installed as lead pastor, or about to be installed as lead pastors, and I, I lost, like, 40 some pounds. I had this gut disease that was undiagnosed. I've put weight back on, hallelujah. <laughs> I was really thin and I was not doing good and I didn't know if I was gonna be able to do the ministry. And I was installed and I started to get better and God brought this mentor into my life. It's a long story for another day. And we made it and I started getting better and I eventually started putting weight back on and I feel great now. And I, and I thank God for his healing and and all the, all the things that he does. I have a nutrition doctor in New York City that I didn't, was very angry with when he first told me what I had to do, but now I love him and he's a friend. <laughs> but, so we got through that and then COVID hits and you're like, oh, you're a new senior pastor for a year and now you gotta deal with COVID. And people in Washington, a lot of conservative Christians wanted to get out of Washington because of different policies and things that were frustrating people. And, so a lot of our churches, just so many people moved out of state and, or moved to the other parts of the state that were more small towns or things like that. And it was just a very challenging time. And we're like, God, we want you to move. We've been praying for revival. We've been praying for a move of God. We have a great history of the things that you've done, but things are not working the way we feel like they should be. There just seems to be a missing piece. Like, would you just show up? And there was a conference that a young man had gotten saved in one of our youth conferences that we used to do seven years ago. And he ended up working with Bill Johnson in Reading after going to the, the school of ministry there. And he ended up going to Orlando for a while to work with Jesus Image Ministry. 
and the Kulianos. And so he wanted to do this event in Seattle. And so we I love this guy. He, he was in our church for a few years before he moved to Reading. And so we knew him and his family. So we've got to support Raul and just help him out. And I think we should go. And I tell my wife, and she's become our kid's pastor, and she's just crushing it and doing great. But it's a lot of work in our schedule, and we've got four kids uh, between 16 and 11. So we're just in this really busy season, and this conference is coming up, and we don't usually have a lot of time to go to conferences. And so, but I'm like, I think we got to go. And I was so frustrated that very day, that Friday that I went to this event, I was like literally calling one of my friends that's a pastor, and I'm like, I'm just so frustrated. And I, I don't think it was in a bad way, but it was just a, a longing and an aching for God. Like, God, I need you to start showing up in our church and in our lives in a way that we had glimpses of it, but we need you. I, I'm just, I'm fed up with anything else but your glory, your goodness, your power. And so that night I went and Bill Johnson was supposed to speak at the event, but he, his wife had passed away. And so he, of course, declined graciously. And Randy Clark came in his place. And so anyway, Randy Clark pre preaches on the impartation and power of the Holy Spirit that night. And the power of God started to come upon me in the seats in a way that I had never experienced before. And I started shaking and trembling in my seat. And the power of the Holy Spirit was just like upon me. And he goes, if you're experiencing the power of the Spirit, then you need to come up and we're going to lay hands on you and just bless what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. And so I ran up to the front altar and all these people were dropping all around me left and right. And he ran and put his hand on me after a little bit. My hand started shaking at home that night. I tried to like, did I make that up? And I was, and then I was like, how did that? And it's like, it didn't even feel the same. I was like, that's so different. Like I, that's so crazy. What, what's happening, you know? But I'm at the altar, my hands are shaking. I'm trying to like, maybe I could relax and maybe I could stop. Is this, I don't want to make things up. I don't want to like, I don't courtesy drop. I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, flop around just to like make people feel like they're more anointed or whatever. Like, not into that. And, and, but I couldn't stop shaking. And he came and put his hand on me and I dropped, I crumpled to the floor and the power of God came over me. I had all these questions and the Lord was just saying, you're mine. It's about me. You just need to be desperate for me and not care what anybody else thinks, but just want me. It was this hunger and desperation that was released in my heart. My wife, we leave that night. My wife's a little frustrated because she said, you said that if we went to this event, we would get touched by God, but only you got touched by God. <laughs> and I was like, well, there's another night. Like we, and she's like, we're so busy. But she decides to go with me again on Saturday night. Heidi Baker minister that night. Ministry comes to a close. They start praying. People are all kneeling up at the altar. And my wife sitting up in the front row, she gets hit by the power of the Holy Spirit. And she begins to shake under the power of God. And God did such a powerful work in her life. Finally, she's like, okay, it's getting pretty late. And they had already made a couple dismissals, but she's like, we need to stay longer. And I'm like, that does not happen when my kids are at my parents' house and we got early morning. So I'm like, okay, this is God. So she gets up to start to walk. And we said goodbye to a couple of our staff members and friends that were there. And right as she walks around the edge of the front row, the power of God comes upon her so strong, she falls into the folded theater seats at the, this church we were at. And she's shaking on top of the seats while they're closed. And we have to set her on the ground. And the power of God's upon her so strong. And my friend James is there and he's laughing so hard. He's like, you guys are not leaving right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so we get my wife to the car a little bit later. And I wake up. I go to bed at like midnight, like 1230 at night. I wake up because God's power is still coming upon her. And then God's power visited our church services. This is like five or six weeks ago. 
the power of God came into our church services and people, people that have had conditions, have been getting healed, have been getting delivered. People that have never even been in a Pentecostal church before are walking up going, why do I have electricity all over? What kind of place is this? What's happening to me right now? There's this big strong dude, he's sweating, he's shaking, he's like crying and he's like, I've never been in a church like this. Can you explain what's happening to me right now? A young lady that we just, a young lady that I went to school with, and I'm moving right into my fourth point. We must move not only from curiosity to desperation, but to, from the natural to the supernatural, where we give God space to do whatever he wants to do, no matter what it looks like. It's not about what it looks like. It's not about outward manifestations. It's about the change that comes upon people's life when God touches people. But I've been reading revival history the last five or six weeks like never before. I've been listening to messages. I've been reading books and accounts of revivals. And every time God's spirit shows up in supernatural ways, people react physically. Even in Baptist revivals, Methodist revivals, it doesn't matter. Some of the revival histories get the, the manifestations of how people react physically actually have been edited out in some people's accounts of history. But when you go to original sources of revivals, you will find that very often people shook, cry, wept, laughed. Some people, they called it, the, they were under the jerks. Um, but what happened in these moments, there was a young lady that I went to high school with, her brother's on our staff. Her name's Crystal. She was standing in the back of our sanctuary a couple weeks ago. I said, if the power of God is coming upon you right now, you need to come to the altar. Or if you need a miracle, come to the altar. Well, her hand was shaking a little bit. And she goes, I feel God's power, but I'm not coming forward. She like, her family said, we've never seen her go up to an altar call like her whole life. Like she had faith in Jesus, but she didn't do an altar call thing. And as soon as she said, I'm not going up, then the power of God started to shake her so strong. It was so aggressive. She had to come to the altar. So she comes to the altar and she's shaking. She's crying. And I'm like, is that Crystal? I'm like, oh my goodness. And then I prayed with her. Some other pastors pray with her. She felt, she had anxiety attacks like her whole life. She had a voice, she said, constantly in her head telling her she's worthless. She doesn't measure up. Something's wrong with her. And she was under this depression. She would get anxiety attacks where her whole chest would tighten and she couldn't breathe. And that was like happening to her in that moment. But it was like God came in that moment to lift it off of her. And she said she woke up the next morning and she could see the colors differently out the window. She said she had one of the worst weeks she had all week, but none of that anxiety was upon her anymore. She's like, the devil threw everything at me he possibly could. But we're seeing God deliver people of sin, habits that they couldn't get rid of, simply being in the presence of God where there's an atmosphere of hunger and worship and adoration because number five, we must move from celebrity to Christ. It's not about who the biggest talking head is, who the biggest, has the biggest platform, who has got the most social media followers, who's the celebrity in the news, or who's trying to steer the church this way or that way. The church is Jesus Christ's bride. He is the head of the church. We are his body. The church has to become a Jesus people again, where we want the glory to be unto his name, where we want the honor to be unto him, where we want people to know when they see us, they see Christ. They perceive that we've been with Jesus. It's about ministering to him first first and most, about pleasing the master's heart. It's about him getting glory and honor. And in that place, we have a power to live in the way of Christ. It's through his spirit working in us and through us. When we minister to him, he comes upon us and he has his way and he has his expression and he wants his church. He wants his bride back. He's jealous for his glory and his honor. And he's longing for us to be the, bring him the glory that's due his name so that he can share his presence with us and we can be a people of his presence and power and a people that 
that make disciples and a people that permeate every area of our cities and this society with the good news that Jesus is Lord, that we carry his gospel, we carry his power, we carry his love, we carry hope. That's our DNA. That's our inheritance, church. We are a glorious bride who is made washed white by our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, washing us with the water of his word and us walking in our inheritance and the full power of what he has for us in this hour of human history. It's time to receive. It's time to yield. It's time to get on the altar. It's time to say, Jesus, have your way in me. Have your way in me. Let your power come upon me. Let me become a worshiper. Let me become a person of your presence. I don't want to observe. I want to participate. And ultimately, I want to participate in this glorious relationship with the Son of God, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was slain for us. Amen?